All right, well, you can uh, open to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to keep moving uh, through our series. We're, you know, a month in, and we're at 11, or verse 14 of chapter 2. That's pretty good. Only two and a half years to go. I joke about that, but I'm not actually sure that I am joking. I'm not sure how long it's going to take. But let me just give you a quick recap. If you're visiting uh, or if you're new this morning, let me just give you a quick recap with what's happened um, because it's going to be important as we move forward. And and we're going to take a few little rabbit trails, well, two that I know of. We'll see if there's another one coming, um, that are important, that are implied in the text, but are not, well... I would argue they are explicit. I think we just sometimes read over them or we come at them with our own church traditions that we've grown up in and we interpret them in certain ways that maybe are not always correct. And so we want to make sure we let the Bible interpret the Bible. So uh, the Gospels end, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament end with Jesus uh, dying on the cross for our sins, kind of the culmination of the entire Old Testament pointing us to the fact that we needed a Savior, that we needed one who would offer his life in place of ours. And so in the Gospels, we read that this is who Jesus is, and, and that's actually what we're going to read here in Peter's sermon is, is the proofs, the, um, the explanation to the Jewish people that, look, this is this Jesus. He is the Messiah. This was God's plan right from the beginning. But Jesus doesn't uh, stay dead. He rises again, showing that he's conquered death. And, and kind of all through the New Testament, you have this, this argument that keeps um, being presented of, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then so too will we. And that we will, if we have submitted our hearts and lives to Christ, that we are assured that when we die, we will rise again and we will be with God for all of eternity. And there's no greater news than that. And so Jesus comes, um, he rises again, and then he teaches for 40 days the, uh, the disciples. And again, we think of only the 12, but as we've seen in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, it's about 120 roughly people, disciples of Jesus, who have been following him in these moments. And Jesus teaches them over 40 days, and he teaches them not, not some new doctrine, but he helps them understand everything with the cross and the resurrection as central, giving them a new perspective about everything. And this is going to be really important too because for the Jewish people, they were eagerly awaiting their Messiah. They just didn't understand that the Messiah was going to have to die. And so when Jesus died, many people went, well, this can't be right. This, this can't be him. But Jesus, of course, when he rises and he reveals himself to them again, shows them that no, this was always God's plan. We're going to see that in our text again this morning. And then he ascends into heaven and he promises his disciples, he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come. I'm going to send him. I'm going to use him to equip you to accomplish the great commission which he gave at the end of the Gospels. And the great commission is to go where? Come on, somebody. Into all the earth. Thank you. Not, Not just here. Not just our lives. Not just our families. But we're to go into all the world. And we're to preach the gospel, we're to remind them of who Jesus is, we're to baptize them, we're to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And he promised he would be with them, and now he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so that it's not for you to accomplish this, 
but it's for you to be faithful to allow God to work in and through us. And then last week, we looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We were reminded that the people were gathered together, eagerly praying and awaiting this Holy Spirit. They weren't, they weren't just sitting there going, well, he said it's going to happen, so I guess we'll just wait. They eagerly gathered together in prayer. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And we looked at how there's the symbolism that Luke gives us in the first four verses of chapter 2, the wind and the fire, pointing us back to the tabernacle, ultimately the temple. That in the Old Testament, that there was a place where God's presence dwelled, and, and we needed to go to that place. But because of sin, there was, there was something that impeded us from having that fullness with God. And so there was the, we had to get... Our offer sacrifices for sins. We had to become ritually clean so that we could approach God. And then we see when the Holy Spirit comes down that this fire descends, but then it splits apart and it descends onto each individual, which is Luke's clear way of telling us that where we had to go to see God is no longer the way that God works. Now God works because he dwells in each one of us. That that thing that that sin that kind of wrecked that fellowship that we could have with God had been paid for at the cross, that Jesus, his substitutionary atonement for us was sufficient, and now we could share the Holy Spirit in our own lives. We didn't have to go somewhere, but that God is now in us, and he's called us to be the ones to go. We then looked at the miraculous uh, signs that happened in, in kind of verses 5 to 13. And here what you see is that the Holy Spirit comes on every one of them and they kind of go down out of the upper room into the temple courts and they begin to speak in all these other languages that these other Jewish people from all over parts of the known world there spoke and they were looking at them and like, how are these Galileans speaking in a language that I understand? And, and the important part that we looked at is what were they doing while they were speaking? They were declaring the mighty works of God. And then we finished by looking that there was a response of the crowd, that some were amazed and perplexed and they wanted to learn more while others mocked. And, and we looked at how that's a reality that we face today too. Is that interaction with Jesus means a decision rests with us. Is are we going to pursue that? Or are we going to reject and make fun of? Now here's the thing, as we begin, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as we begin chapter two, starting in verse 14, What's important to know is that this gift, this, this miraculous work of people speaking in all these other languages for the people to know and to hear, they declared God's mighty works, but Peter then steps up and he preaches the gospel to them. If Peter didn't get up and preach the gospel to them, excuse me, those miracles, or that great miracle would just be that a moment of a miracle. But the moment of the miracle was to get them to pay attention so that the gospel could be declared, so that people would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what you and I are going to read this morning. We're going to read verses 14 to 36, and it's going to be a very awkward place to stop because we're not going to look at the crowd's response because I want to tie in the response next week to the creation of the church as it begins. So let's read together. This is 2, 14 to 36. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the sermon that, at least the parts that Luke records for us. And what's really important for us to realize here is there's three different sections of Old Testament prophecy that Peter addresses and wants to deal with. So what we have to do is remember his audience. And who is he speaking to? A whole pile of Jewish people who were familiar with the Old Testament writings. Very familiar with them, though they didn't understand them all that well. And, and that's not a slight by any means, because Jesus himself, working with the twelve and, and others that followed him, is he had to constantly correct some of their misinterpretings and misunderstandings about the Old Testament. He had to point them and say, these, these are about me, this thing, this This passage, this issue, this is yet to come. It's going to be fulfilled at the cross. He spoke of his death and his resurrection, but they didn't understand it very well. But now Peter understands it very well. He has seen it. 
He's encountered the risen Lord. He's watched him ascend into heaven. He's witnessed the Holy Spirit come out. Those 40 days of Jesus' teaching have all of a sudden become clear to him. And so he addresses the crowd. Peter says, no, no one is drunk. Now remember, we said this last week. I don't know about you, but when you're around people who have been drinking too much, it isn't filled with lots of ability to speak other people's languages that you didn't know how to do before. It usually means they're trying to make up a language that no one can understand. But the reverse is true here is God uses men and women to speak and declare to these other people from these other parts of the known world. And he quotes the book of Joel as the example of this. Now, Joel is a, a, a short, he was not short, let's be clear. I don't know. He might have been short. It's a small, oh boy, there's no way to, nice way to say it. There's only four chapters in the book of Joel. It is not a long book in the Bible. And it's one that often we kind of overlook. Those minor prophets are sometimes really difficult to interpret. There's so much imagery and allegory, and it can be very difficult to know, man, what does this mean? Well, Peter recognized immediately from seeing when the Holy Spirit poured out, this is the fulfillment of what God had promised through Joel. But while he quotes it, and it's really interesting, it's important for us to realize this. There's three different sections that are quoted here, and there's many times throughout the New Testament it's quoted. And sometimes your Bible may have a little footnote, or uh, in your margin it'll say where it's a reference back to. And we can go and look, and it's not always exactly the same. And so that sometimes the question is, uh, are the biblical writers in the New Testament, are they taking poetic license with how they do that? And sometimes it can feel like, man, this kind of nullifies what they're saying. But usually all you have to do is realize this, that more often than not, the New Testament writers are quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so you and I, what we have here is an English translation, not from the Septuagint, though sometimes your Bibles may have a little footnote saying, In the Septuagint, we translate this word a certain way. So I only say that to you so that if you see that there are parts that are like, well, the the translation's not perfect here, is you have access to the Septuagint now. Now, granted, we don't read Greek, but you can jump online and you can very quickly find out, is this quoted correctly? And you'll find that always it is quoted correctly, though sometimes they do quote from the Masoretic text, which is the more Hebrew text. That's stuff that our friend Nick came and talked about a few weeks ago. And he's way more nerdy than I am, so if you have questions, please feel free to email Nick. I'm just kidding. You can email me as well. So he says this, right? In the last days. How many times do we read that in the New Testament? Quite a few times, don't we? In the last days. Now, often we think of that as like the very, very, very last days. But what the biblical writers are looking at is post-resurrection and ascension and the Holy Spirit coming. Those are the last days. This is the way in which God's going to work. In fact, let me read to you. I'm going to quote this later on as well. But in Hebrews 1, it says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us, sorry, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I'm going to reference that again in a moment. Excuse me. But so Peter recognizes that in these last days, well, these are these last days, God's spirit has poured out on all flesh. It says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
And here's why this is important, because remember, there's about 120, give or take, men and women, some servants, some not, all a very mixed bag of people. They come out, and the Spirit descends, and they all begin to speak this way. Scholars sometimes will have difficulties in going, well, well, where is it explicitly stated that the old and the young and men and women and servants shall do this? Well, it only matters if you look back and you understand that those 120 or so people consisted of not only the 12 disciples, but who else? A whole bunch of women that followed, right? Mary, Jesus' brothers. There were other people. There's a very mixed bag of people following Jesus, and they prophesy. Your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. Even on male servants and female servants, they shall prophesy. Now, here's where we're going to take a little rabbit trail, okay? Because I think, depending on your church tradition, and Banff is always interesting because we have many different church traditions represented here. And so if you disagree with me this morning, that's okay. Uh, I probably have disagreed with myself several times throughout the years as well. Um, my concern is only that I am faithful to what the text says. And so if you disagree with me, but you can argue from the text, good, great. I'm not trying to convince you that I understand this perfectly, but I'm trying to show that I think, as I've studied through this over the years, that I think this is what the New Testament is trying to help us understand. Is Depending on that church tradition you're in, if you're in a conservative church, if you've grown up conservative, I grew up in a Mennonite church, right? So that's maybe a little bit further this way yet, is this word prophecy, we don't like that word, because we don't know what it means, and we don't like what other people think it means, and so we just kind of left it, and never dealt with it, until I went to Bible college, I never sat at a, I don't remember sitting at a Bible study talking about how do we interpret this from a New Testament standpoint, so that we understand it correctly. On the flip side, if you've grown up in a far more Pentecostal, or it's if the Mennonites are over there, right, I don't know. Word of faith people over here, somewhere in between. Wherever you're at in that church tradition, that's, that's fine. But let's let, how do I say this? Let's make sure that what we're trying to realize is what the text says and not what our traditions have taught us. So when we think of Old Testament prophecy, what do we think of? I think usually we think of somebody declaring the future, usually about the nation of Israel. That's sort of true, but more important than that is there's a, let's use the old King James here just because it's fun, is the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. So what are they doing? They're declaring God's words to the people. That's the role of the Old Testament prophet. Now, when you read through the prophets, uh, both major and minor, what you see is that God will come reveal himself to them and will say, say to my people these words. And then they go and they declare those words. Now, often it was about the people and about their need to repent because they had left. They were not serving God any longer. And and God would say, if you do not repent, here's what's going to happen. If you do repent, here's what I'll do. Sometimes he would say, because of your disobedience, these are the things that are going to happen. And so, yes, there was kind of a future element in that prophecy, but the future wasn't the point. The point was that the prophet was declaring God's word to us. And so when we get to the New Testament, we see that that role seems to change, and I'm going to argue it doesn't at all. 
but our view of it might need to change. Again, we look at Hebrews where I said long ago, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in this last days he has spoken by Jesus, his son. If prophets were to declare the word of God, then don't we think that Jesus, when he was on earth as God, was declaring his word to us? And everything that we find post-gospels in the New Testament all points us back to it. Often is quoting the Old Testament and often quotes Jesus and says, here's what God has said to us. In fact, the end of the New Testament begins with whoever adds to this. Anyone who gives a new revelation. Right? Paul says it very clearly. If anyone comes and preaches a different gospel than the one that you have heard, what does he say? Let him be accursed. That's about as harsh language as you can use. Paul's point is that everything that we need, and Peter's point later on in in one of his writings, is that everything we need for life and godliness is found in Scripture. So there's the question is, is there New Testament prophecy? Well, absolutely, because do we declare the word of God? In fact, I'm going to argue that we just did that. When I read through the text, that's a prophetic act. That's declaring what God has said and spoken to us for our growth and maturity. But we think of it sometimes as someone coming on stage and going, I'm going to give you a message, something that's very specific about future times for something. That's not what prophecy is. Because that's about me. That's about the things that, that I claim that God's going to do when God has revealed to us everything that we need. And in fact, we're going to do that this morning when we celebrate communion. As we look back and we remind that Jesus said that he's not finished, but he's what? Coming again. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Am I going to come up here and I'm going to say, we better take communion this morning because Jesus is going to come back at four o'clock today. Right? Like, if I say that, what did I tell you to do? No. You're supposed to throw things at me, right? And then you're supposed to get up and leave. Is what we declare, well, Paul says it this way, is Christ and him crucified. What we declare is what the Bible has said to us, and that's what these people, (coughs) excuse me, they prophesied, they declare the mighty works of God. And in verse 18, if you look back to the book of Joel 28 to 32, verse 18, Paul, or sorry, Peter adds here, and they shall prophesy. That part's not in the original text. Now, it is in verse 17 already. I'm convinced that Peter does this because he's trying to help them understand that this is the prophetic act, declaring in the tongues that all these other people understand and know, declaring God's mighty works there, and then Peter gets up to address the crowd and says, let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So are there prophets? Are there New Testament prophets? Absolutely. Anyone who declares the word of God does a prophetic act. So who are the ones that prophesy? I think as we study through the rest of the New Testament, and again, this is a big conversation for another time, but I think what's clear through that is that the prophet is one who helps us interpret the words of God correctly. But how do we do that? Not because I've been given a divine ability to understand all things, but because we've looked back into the text and we've studied so that we've revealed and understood what God has said about who he is. So that's the first rabbit hole that we're going to go down. The only reason I say that's important is so that when we hear they shall prophesy, that we have in our heads 
what the Bible speaks about that and not maybe what my church tradition has or has not said about that. So Peter argues that this act, this moment, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, at Pentecost, this has been fulfilled. But notice that's not his point in the sermon. He starts there because he said, this thing that you just witnessed and that you saw that caused you... um, well, what, did, what does the text say? It, uh, they're amazed and perplexed. This thing that you've witnessed, here's what it was, but here's more important. But here's what it was for. Here's why that miraculous pouring out of Pentecost happened and why it matters. So he says, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, just in case, in case it's not clear which Jesus Peter's referencing. He said, you saw his mighty works, his miracles, the signs that God did through him in your midst. You know full well. Now again, you just have to read through the Gospels and see that Jesus did so many miracles and so many incredible moments happen with the things that he does and says that the crowds began to push around him so much. Uh, This couple of days ago, Smong and I read a text Uh, And you'll remember this, a paralytic wanted to get healed, and he knew Jesus could do it, but he couldn't get to the crowds. So his friends climbed the house and pulled him up on top and took the roof apart and laid him down because they were convinced that Jesus would be able to heal. The Jewish people saw this. The problem was that they didn't like a lot of what Jesus had to say because he was trying to help them understand all of the Old Testament. And until he rises again on the road to Emmaus, (coughs) excuse me, and then he shows the people that he's walking with that all the scriptures point to himself. And they were about him so that we would know who the Messiah was and, and what he was going to accomplish so that there was proofs of that. But the people, they had already crucified Jesus. And that's what Peter is saying here. You saw it. You witnessed it. You know the crowds were there. You've heard. Now, maybe, maybe some of them weren't eyewitnesses, but generally speaking, as a whole, they knew these things. But here's what he says, verse 23. This is really important theology. But this Jesus delivered up according to the what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is hugely important for our theology. God is not reacting when sin comes and goes, man, I guess i got to come up with some kind of plan to redeem mankind. It's not as though God was not aware. It says that Jesus going to the cross was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, that's super important, and I don't want to go down this rabbit trail very long, um, or maybe just like for a couple seconds. There's a big teaching about Christ's atonement that's starting to invade the evangelical church that is saying that, well, Jesus didn't really need to die for us, that he had come really to show us how to live, how to love God and love people. That was the goal. And then the people just rebelled and killed him. Except that that goes exactly against what this says. And so we need to make sure that we let the Bible interpret the Bible. And when people come with ideas that we go back to Scripture to see, is this true or is that wrong? Now, again, there's a couple of really big-name authors who are moving in this direction, and some have declared it very plainly. And I think when we see those things, we need to go back to the text. No, this is God's plan according to his foreknowledge. But notice also, this is God's plan, but who who crucified him? The people. 
right? He says, this was according to God's plan, but you crucified him. So there's a complicity in the people as well that they're the ones who killed him by the hands of lawless men. Remember, Pilate gave them all kinds of opportunities. He knew he didn't want to kill Jesus. In fact, he says, I find no guilt in this man, but he was afraid of the crowds and what might happen. So rather than doing what was right, he delivered Jesus to be crucified. But the, the crowds themselves did it, and they did it not because, well, this was God's definite plan of foreknowledge, so we'll kill him. They rejected him. They despised him. They hung him there, and they made him suffer. Now, God knew all of these things, and so there's a beautiful kind of symmetry here of God's sovereignty and man's free choice and how those interplay. And again, that's a sermon for another time. I don't know how to explain that. I know that I have free will. I know that I've been given responsibility to make choices, but I also know that God has chosen. And if you want to have that conversation with me further, I would love to because that is a long, difficult one. But what we see here in the text is that both are at play. But notice, the crowds crucified him. They killed him. But God raised him up. (coughs) Because God's plan was not for Jesus to die and to remain dead. It was that death would be conquered. Not just would sin be paid for, though that was completed on the cross. But when Jesus died, that that he would raise him to life so that you and I, too, would be able to be raised to life after we die. Peter says, it's impossible for God to, or for Jesus to be held by death. And then he quotes uh, from Psalms. And again, I think this is, you know, interesting and something that maybe we, I don't know, maybe it's not as common to us to immediately go back to the Old Testament, but who's he speaking to? Jewish people who knew their Old Testament history and knew that it wasn't always as good as maybe they wanted it to be. But what did they know about David? Well, there was a covenant, right? The Davidic covenant. What was the covenant or the promise given to David? I mean, it says it here, so we already read it, so I'm not asking you new information. But what does it say? That there will always be someone of your line to reign on the throne. That the king of all kings will come in your line, David. And he points out that David, uh, quoting this from the Psalms, is, is David's not speaking about himself. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart will be glad. My tongue rejoice. Why? Not because he... Not because David is getting something amazing happening to him, but because he knows that God's going to deal with sin once and for all through the person of the Messiah. And he says, he will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, here's one of these things that this is both and. This is not only about Jesus, and it's not only about David. Is David going to be abandoned to Hades? Will you and I be abandoned to Hades? No, because of the cross of Christ, we will not be abandoned. We will be glorified. But will our body see corruption? Yeah. Our bodies will go into the ground and they'll decompose and there'll be no more. But the Holy One, he will not see corruption. And so Peter argues that David, not speaking of himself, but he was a prophet. There it is again. 
And he was prophesying. He was declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ long before Jesus had come to the earth. He was declaring that this is what is going to happen to the Messiah. He spoke. Now here's the key. This is a really important Old Testament doctrine because some people will argue that the Old Testament doesn't speak about Jesus rising from the dead. They'll look at Isaiah 53 and say, okay, maybe the Messiah will have to die, but they don't talk about him rising from the dead. But Peter says 31, he foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ. Peter is... Again, this is where biblical theology, we're letting the Bible interpret the Bible for us. As Peter, through the Holy Spirit, has written these things, for, or Luke, rather, has written these things for us so that we would see that this is what is written about the Messiah back in the Psalms. God raised him up. And we're witnesses of this. And then he says he's exalted at the right hand of God. Not only did he rise from the dead, but what else happened? He ascended to be with the Father. And he quotes from Psalm 110.1 then again saying, David wrote this not about himself because, yes, David died. His, his tomb is, is there. They knew where it was. And, but Jesus rose and went to be with God until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, until the very last days when Jesus will come back and all wrongs will be righted, and he will reign in his kingdom for forever. So how does he respond? How does it end? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What was Peter concerned about? That they would know who Jesus is. Not well, let's say it this way. This question, who is Jesus, is going to be the most important question that any of us ever answer. But it's not like this is the first time this has happened. If you look in Matthew 16, if you want to flip back, or it'll be on the screen. But Matthew 16, Jesus is walking with his disciples. And he says this in verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say, or sorry, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they respond like this. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There's something significant in that. Again, we don't have time. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ. That Greek word Christ means Messiah. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter declares what is the most important question. He answers it in faith. Now, between then in Matthew 16 and now in our text in Acts 2, there's a lot of ups and downs for Peter. It's not just smooth sailing for him. He makes some pretty horrible decisions. He says some pretty horrible things, but Je Jesus forgives, reinstates, and then empowers Peter with the Holy Spirit. And now, and we're going to see this next week, but now through this sermon, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody here ever had that? An amazing thought. That as he declared, so here's the thing. I can declare those words. Will 3,000 people come to faith? Well, there's not 3,000 people here. 
point is not that Peter convinced them. The point is that the Holy Spirit was at work. Okay, this is super important that we get this. It's not in our own strength that any of this is ever going to happen. The point is simply this, is that when the Holy Spirit is at work, all we need to do is be faithful, and God will do amazing things. I said this many times, but perhaps you've had the opportunity where you've sat with somebody and tried to declare the gospel to them, and you've shown them and shared your journey with them, and, and you're convinced them, and there's nothing they can do to argue with me here. You got them. And then they walk away and they go, well, thanks for sharing. You're like, what? Where's the response? And then other times, we're unsure what to say and we're nervous and we feel like we've messed up all of our sentences and that they, not even an intelligible word comes out of our mouth and all of a sudden they go, I need Jesus. And we go, how did you figure that out? Because it's about the Holy Spirit, not about me and you. Now, we have a responsibility. We have to be faithful, but God's the one who's going to do it. God's the one who is at work. But it's so important for Peter to speak to the Jews and show them, here's who Jesus is. You have to wrestle with this question. Do you accept that Jesus was the Messiah and all that it comes with, or do you reject him? Well, the same question is posed to us now. Do you believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, that through his blood our sins are forgiven, that through his coming back to life, that death is conquered and that we can go and be with him for all of eternity. I hope that's who you believe. I hope that's why you're here this morning, because you declare and confess that. But here's why we didn't talk about the response of the crowd, because I want to tie it with the beginning of the church at the end of Acts chapter 2 next week. Because as Peyton read in Matthew, the during our worship time, is this is not about just intellectual understanding. This is not just about us saying, okay, yeah, I believe that Jesus is who he claimed he was, okay. It's when it travels from our head down to our heart, when we not only intellectually understand, but we really choose to follow Jesus with our whole lives, and we say, God, you have given me salvation. You have brought everything to me. I offer my life to you. And that's what we're going to read about next week, their response and how the church was created and what the church began to do and to teach and how they lived together. And I hope that that'll be deeply challenging to each one of us. So yes, wrestle with this question of who is Jesus? Was he who he claimed? Was he who he claimed to be? but even, or just as important as that, so what are the implications of that confession? If Jesus is who he declared himself to be, what difference does that make in my life and in your life and how we live, in what we do, how we talk, how we act, the places we go, the way in which we do our work, the way in which we communicate with people in relationship? Those are the things that we're going to see in and through next week. But as we finish here this morning, as we move into a time of communion, I just want to end here. Jesus and the message of the gospel will always leave us with a choice. How are we going to respond to it? 
And that's what I want you to do today. I want you to go home and I want you to spend some time in prayer, spend some time in conversation with your family and to say, do we believe that this Jesus is who he claimed he was? Why or why not? And if we do believe that Jesus is who he claimed he was, then let's evaluate ourselves, lead us up to and prepare ourselves for next week. Because I'm going to argue that the church is going to be the most significant and important outside of Jesus and possibly your spouse, that there is no more important relationship than with the church because the church will declare to the world who Jesus is. So let's talk about that next week. Let's think about that as we prepare. Let's pray, and then we'll take communion together. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this sermon that Peter preaches to the people of Pentecost. God, thank you that we don't just see the Spirit come, miracles happen, and then it moves on from there. But thank you that Peter then declares the good news of Jesus Christ so that the people can respond. God, I think so often we get so hung up on wishing that we could be part of a miracle that we forget that the thing that we're declared to do is to go and to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. So God, I I don't know how you're going to work in and through me or the lives of the others here, except that I know you will. So help us not focus only on certain ways in which you work, but help us to be faithful to whatever it is that you call us to. As we go home after lunch today and as we spend some time reflecting, may we consider this question, do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? What does that mean practically for my life moving forward? God, thank you that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus came to this earth. That he showed us how to love God and to love people. That he lived a perfect life in full submission to you that he did not sin, that he willingly went to the cross to pay his life in place of ours, that he rose again from the dead, conquering death, that he ascended into heaven to send us the Holy Spirit that we might have your presence with us every minute of every day. God, help us to reflect on this gospel, the good news of Jesus, and may it never become boring or something that we think we know, but would we constantly remind ourselves of its truth and its power. God, as we celebrate communion here in just a moment now, we remind ourselves of Jesus' death, but we also remind ourselves that we are living in these last days awaiting for Christ to return, to come again when he will bring judgment to the earth and then he will bring those of us who have submitted our lives to you, that he will bring us to be with you for eternity. And he will
will wipe every tear, that there'll be no more hurt, no more pain, no more struggle, no more insecurity, no more grief, only joy to be with you. So God, we celebrate that this morning. Continue to work in and through us. Amen.